everybody. Welcome to Conservation Cafe. I'm Hillary Wilkinson. I'm a science communicator and a conflict resolution expert, and I specialize in protecting natural resources. I invite you to grab a cup of coffee, pull up a chair in this virtual cafe here, and join our conversation where we will explore ingenuity and innovation at the front line of the conservation battles. To oversimplify things, there are, there are two ways to deal with a conservation problem. Either you let the, the fishery service develop a mitigation measure and that mitigation measure is, is put on you or you as the industry understand and recognize the extent of the problem and think about the tools and the capabilities you have, the, innovate, the innovations that you have, the ingenuity you have to design a, a better mousetrap essentially to solve the same problem. On today's show, a story about how fishermen and federal regulators collaborated to design a better mousetrap to protect an endangered seabird. I have two guests here in the virtual cafe with me to tell this story. Dan Waldeck, whose voice you heard earlier, and Dan is the executive director of the Pacific Whiting Conservation Cooperative. And my second guest, Jason Janet, is a fisheries biologist with NOAA's Northwest Fisheries Science Center in Seattle. That's the sound of a nesting colony of Laysan albatross on Midway Island in the North Pacific. Human beings have been enamored of albatross for a very long time. They've been described as Earth's most wondrous creatures. Of course, Samuel Coleridge wrote The Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner about albatross. They've given golfers a useful phrase for being three under par on a single hole. And they've even galvanized Prince Charles to be their celebrity spokesman. And those rare individuals who have an opportunity to see albatross in the wild seem to have a spiritual experience when they first lay eyes on them. I love this quote from this guy who said, I feel like I've been to church when he first saw an albatross. And another said, I now belong to a higher cult of mortals for I have seen the albatross. Now, in my opinion, there are a couple reasons that people freak out over albatross. I'm sure there's more, but the two that really stand out for me is, first of all, they have the longest wingspan of any living bird, which makes them quite a sight to behold. And another is that they have a lifespan that mirrors ours. They can live up to 60, 70, even 80 years. Back in 2013, there was a wild Laysan albatross named Wisdom, and I love that name, and she made headlines when they found out she was still laying eggs and raising chicks at the age of 63. Now, Wisdom and her fellow Laysan albatross represent one of 22 species of albatross known to science. And every single one of these 22 species is considered vulnerable, threatened, near-threatened, or endangered by conservationists. And like all species in trouble, there are many contributing factors to the decline— but for albatross, a big one, and one that has been researched thoroughly, has to do with their interactions with fishing vessels out on the ocean. Albatross are attracted to the fish waste on these vessels, and they can end up getting killed. The fancy scientific term for that is bycatch. Your listeners might be familiar with seabird bycatch in hook and line fisheries, fisheries where they're using uh, hooks on a long line, and the bird comes down, tries to catch the bait, gets hooked and then drowns and comes back on board um, as a hooked bird. 
That was my second guest here in the cafe, Jason Janet. I mentioned earlier he's a fisheries biologist with NOAA. Now, there are about 100,000 albatross killed each year in the hook and line fisheries, but our focus today is on one particular species, the short-tailed albatross, which lives in the North Pacific. There are three albatrosses in the North Pacific, the short-tailed, the blackfoot, and the laysan. The short-tailed albatross is the biggest one of the three, and you can tell it's the short-tailed albatross because it's a big pink bubblegum beak. It looks like bubblegum. And they're huge birds. They spend most of their life flying in, in the air. They very rarely come to land. They only land to mate. And they mate on Torishima Island, is their main breeding island in the, off the coast of Japan, southern Japan. And the problem is that uh, short-tailed albatrosses have one breed, essentially one breeding island in the, in the world. Um, there's a few other small populations, but this island, Torishima, is a volcanic island. And if it, it's an active volcano, if it were to go off, most of the population of short-tailed albatross would lose their breeding sites. So this bird has actually become endangered over time. So the short-tailed albatross appears to have put all of its eggs, quite literally, in a tiny, volatile basket in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. Now, Torishima Island is less than two square miles, and get this, it's the above-ground portion of an underwater volcano. So they're kind of like the bird equivalent of that guy, Harry Truman. Do you remember that guy? He's the one who refused to leave his home on the flanks of Mount St. Helens back in 1980, despite urgent warnings from geologists that it was going to blow at any moment. Now, Harry did not survive the eruption of Mount St. Helens, and scientists like Jason fear that the short tail will not survive as a species if Torishima blows. But things are getting a little bit better for the short tails. Back in 1933, there were only 50 of them on Torishima, and now there's about 5,000. And this is partially thanks to the Japanese government's declaration of Torishima as a bird sanctuary back in 1954. But of course, their situation remains precarious. Volcanic activity was recorded there in 2002, and as we mentioned earlier in the episode, there is another threat, not just the eruption of the volcano, but the potential impacts from fishing practices. And not just any fishing practices, but the catcher-processor fisheries. A catcher-processor is a fishing vessel that does exactly what the name implies. It both catches fish and it processes them on board. And in the North Pacific, where the short-tail albatross resides, Federal regulators were specifically concerned about two of these catcher processor fisheries, the West Coast Hake and the Alaska Trawl Fisheries. But this, this fishery that we were concerned with is, is a trawl fishery, so they're using nets, and um, there's no hooks involved. But what there are, these nets are connected to the vessel by these cables. Um, and essentially, there's three or four of these cables. Um, and these cables come off the back of the deck and go into the water connected to the net and what happens is birds are flying around the back of the vessel and they're looking for food there's discharge from the boat fish waste from the boat that they like to feed on they're searching for that and they can run into these wires while they're flying or while they're swimming on the water and that can potentially injure them or kill them I was a little bit confused about why these seabirds can't actually see the wires coming off the back of these fishing vessels and so therefore run into them and potentially die. So I asked Jason to explain it. We don't know a whole lot about bird vision, particularly seabird vision. It's very difficult to study. But 
part of it probably has to do with what they're doing. When you think about a bird and why it's around a vessel at all, a fishing vessel at all, well, it's there because there's food. They're putting out this fish waste. These are factory trawlers that are processing the fish 24-7. So they're, they're constantly dumping, you know, fish guts and eyeballs out the side of the vessel. And the birds are flying around the back of the vessel looking for the most tasty morsel. And it's sort of like if you were on your bicycle riding on the bike trail and you saw your friend and you turned to wave at your friend, hey, how's it going? And all of a sudden a tree branch hits you in your other shoulder and, you know, knocks you off your bike or something. It's that same idea. They're just kind of maybe not paying attention enough to what's in front of them because in I mean, you think about it, an ocean, normally there isn't wires where their birds are flying around. They spend their whole time in the air and they never have to worry about running into something, right? They're not like songbirds that uh, live on land and might run into a, a learn how to avoid um, trees or, or buildings. Um, so that's part of the reason that the, the birds are not uh, seeing the, the wires is that they just probably aren't paying attention very much well to those kinds of things. They're just not used to having stuff in the air around them. So these birds are trying to make a living just like anybody else, and they come upon that rare and glorious sight, a free all-you-can-eat buffet. This happens to be in the middle of the ocean. They're used to living life on the wing. They're not used to having things in their path, as Jason said, so they wing on down, and they don't necessarily see the lines coming off these vessels. They don't understand the peril that they put themselves in. They're not used to it. Now, earlier in the show, I mentioned that about 100,000 albatross are killed each year in the hook and line fisheries. And here in the North Pacific, of course, we're not talking about the hook and line fisheries. We're talking about the catcher processor vessels and trawlers. And Jason and his colleagues don't actually know the number of seabirds impacted each year by this particular type of fishery, but they are trying to get a better handle on it. I work for the Northwest Fisheries Science Center Observer Program. The Northwest Fisheries Science Center is part of NOAA Fisheries. Some people know it as NIMFS, National Marine Fisheries Service. And uh, these science centers, the, the purpose of them, there's seven or eight of them around the country. The, the purpose is to provide science for management of fisheries around the country. An observer program, which is the program I work for within the Science Center here in Seattle, what we do is we actually train scientists to go on commercial fishing vessels and collect data about what's being thrown overboard. And that data gets all sent back to me and I turn it into products for management. So in about 2015, the data being collected by the observers on the fishing vessels and being analyzed by Jason and his colleagues at NOAA started to show that albatross were showing up in the bycatch from these fishing practices. Now, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service is the federal agency responsible for protecting endangered seabirds, and when they saw the results of this research, they put NOAA on alert and said, hey, you need to conduct additional research and find out what the specific impacts to the short tails are from these fishing practices. So Jason and his team did exactly that. And so we went out and did a little project to sort of look at how these birds were interacting with these vessels. What we found that first season, which was 2016, was quite a high incidence of black-footed albatross striking these wires. 
it turned out that over time, we collected data up through 2019, uh, the number of those interactions seemed to go down over time. But that first year, we were kind of alarmed because it was so high. Now, I was really curious about why the black-footed albatross was being looked at so closely when the focus was actually on the short tails. So I asked Jason to explain it. The black-footed albatross is not as in serious danger as the short-tailed albatross. The reason that we decided to focus on the black-tailed albatross is because this fishery that we're looking at right now, we've never seen an interaction with the short-tailed albatross. However, if one were to occur, it could be problematic both for the short-tails as well as for the fishery. So we used Blackfoot to sort of understand what might happen if a short-tail were to interact with these vessels. Um, So that's kind of why we focused on the black-footed albatross, because we have more data. We have data showing that the black-footed albatross actually do interact with these vessels. And we also have other data that show that short-tailed albatross occur in the same areas as this fishery. So we know the potential for interaction between short-tail and this fishery is there. We just don't know what the risks are. So the black-footed albatross is serving as a sort of proxy for the short-tails, helping the scientists understand what might happen to a short-tail if it were to come in contact with one of these fishing vessels. So as we heard from Jason, he and his team were fairly alarmed with this initial round of data in 2016, and I asked him to share his thoughts after that round of data came across his desk. We better start to talk to the fishermen about this problem, alert them to it, bring bring it to their awareness, because these guys are thinking about fish. They're not thinking about birds. And it turns out there was one person who was key to helping Jason and his colleagues talk to those fishermen. And that person was, you guessed it, Dan. I think it was it was important that the fishery service, both both the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and National Fishery Service, thought it was really important to not only bring in sort of the policy people like me who understand the nuances of, of, you know, minimizing impacts on endangered species, but also to bring in the people that are directly affected by it, the people who work on board those vessels, the people who design the gear, the people who use the gear day in and day out. Now, an interesting note, Dan actually used to be a fisheries observer. So he has a science background and therefore can really talk shop with the federal regulators, understands them, they understand him. But he's in this position as the executive director of this group called the Pacific Whiting Conservation Cooperative. And this is a group whose mission it is, is to collaborate across the catcher processor sector and set voluntary limits on harvest and come to mutual agreements about reducing bycatch and increasing efficiency and things like that. So he has the trust of the fishermen as well. And so he's in this very unique position to be an effective bridge or liaison between the federal regulators and the fishermen on this issue regarding short-tailed albatross. He's kind of like the rug in the Big Lebowski, you know, the one that tied the room together? That's Dan. Okay, so now it's time to have a little knowledge dropped on you about the Hake fishery. It turns out that the Hake fishery accounts for the largest volume of fish harvested on the West Coast of the U.S. each year. That means it is an incredibly important fishery. And I'm a fish eater. I had almost not even heard of Hake before I was brought on board to help with this issue. And so I asked Dan to help me understand where consumers of fish like me might actually encounter Hake in the marketplace. Sure. And, and I think it's important for your listeners to understand that 
the majority of the product that comes out of the Hague fishery goes off to to export markets. It goes off to Europe and to Africa and to Asia, especially the traditional traditional Chinese and Japanese market is is in surimi, which is an analog that goes into artificial crab and other sort of sushi products. Um, the European market is more of, uh, of, of fillets and and you know individually quick frozen portions that you'd see on a plate. Um, Pacific Whiting and Hake also go into um, into mince products, which is is um, you know a fish and chips or a or a fillet of fish at McDonald's. You're going to see. So the next time you're at McDonald's, you can impress your friend by dropping a little intel about where that fish fillet came from. Okay, okay, back to the storyline, back to the birds. Uh, remember this clip? We better start to talk to the fishermen about this problem, alert them to it, bring, bring it to their awareness, because these guys are thinking about fish. They're not thinking about birds. So now it's time to head into that room where that conversation between the regulators and the fishermen actually took place. Now, this room was a pretty typical conference room at NOAA's offices in Seattle. And in it, for two days in the fall of 2017, regulators and the fishermen sat side by side talking about two things. First, the research that the scientists were doing showing the potential risk to the short tails from fishing operations. And the second was trying to collaborate on finding ways to keep the short tails away from the fishing vessels. Now, I've been involved in the field of natural resources for, oh, coming up on 20 years now, and this was personally my first time that I had experienced an approach like this, where regulators and regulatees collaborate to solve a natural resource problem. It's not uncommon for regulators and regulatees to have fairly contentious relationships. There's tons of examples out there in the world. Um, But what seems to be more uncommon from my perspective is for this collaboration to happen. And I asked Jason if he agreed that this approach that Noah was taking was unique. I personally think it was somewhat unique and in part because I took it upon myself to, to sort of take the initiative to approach the industry. And there was some resistance to that, both internally in the agency and, um, and of course, through the industry as well. My philosophy was there's a lot of reactive management that goes on, especially to issues of bycatch. And we would call this bycatch, right? This is, a, this is the situation where they're, they're killing something, but they're not going to use it. They're throwing it overboard. Or in this case, it's maybe not even making it on board. But in any case, there's a lot of, in, my, in the fishing industry, there's a lot of sort of, oh no, we've exceeded our bycatch limit on species X. What do we do now? It's very reactive. And I kind of felt like if we got the industry involved early, then maybe we could be a little bit more proactive about preventing the issue before it actually becomes an issue. So this proactive approach that Jason is describing actually has a name, Social scientists call it multidisciplinary collaborative problem solving. Others call it alternative dispute resolution. 
And it's actually being used with increasing frequency to resolve natural resources conflicts. And of course, this field has a history of conflict. Think oil, think coal, think lobster wars in Maine. And what this research is showing is that this collaborative approach can actually be more effective at figuring out long-term sustainable solutions to complicated natural resources issues. I shared with Dan that my understanding of the history of the fishing industry and the regulatory community was that it was a pretty contentious relationship. And here's how he responded. I might not completely agree with you that, that it's always contentious. I think there are examples where there has been very contentious experiences between regulators and fishing communities. I think my experience on seabirds specifically, be it the longline fishery and development of streamer lines to minimize impacts on seabirds, or be it the work we're doing with trawl gear and albatross and other seabirds, my experience has, has been more positive. And I think part of that is because there, you know, the history that a, a person like, I, I've got a, a strong history with folks like Vanessa Tuttle and others at the fishery service. And I, I already have relationships and I have trust with them. And so when conversations are necessary to, to think about albatross and catch a or trawl gear, we've, we've already got a leg up. We've got a foundation built that allows us to bring other folks into the room and to expand that conversation to include crew members so they can hear, again, what Jason thinks, what Jason's concerned about. And then Jason can hear what a skipper is concerned about, what a trawl crewman is concerned about. And you can bring those voices together, again, to think about solutions that, that are workable for the industry and effective at minimizing impacts. I heard a quote recently that I really liked, and it said, a person's success in life is often directly related to how many difficult conversations they're willing to step into. So we're now going to go into that room again where this difficult conversation between fishermen and the regulators was happening about how to build a better mousetrap, how to design some mitigation strategies to reduce the risk to the short-tailed albatross from fishing operations. And Conservation Cafe is more than just about shining a spotlight on natural resources successes. It's also about shining a spotlight on the things that actually happen to contribute to those successes. But before we go there, we first have to go somewhere else, and that somewhere else is Netflix. So this episode of Conservation Cafe is being recorded during the COVID pandemic, and in Washington State, where I live, um, where, of course, we've been in a lockdown, we came out of the lockdown, schools closed, it's been kind of desperate times. And my husband and I have a nine-year-old daughter, and like many other families with young children, we've kind of been desperately seeking out sources of entertainment and educational material. And one of the things that we found was the show on Netflix called Next in Fashion. And it's a pretty typical reality TV show where fashion designers are competing with each other. Um, they get a theme every week. They have to design something. And then there's a competition where they put their clothing on a beautiful model and they have an actual runway show and somebody emerges the winner and somebody emerges the loser. And, and then we go on to the next episode. Personally, my favorite theme of this whole thing was the denim theme. <laughs> it was awesome. But uh, anyway, the point of this is that this show has really given me an appreciation for what goes into designing comfortable, attractive clothing. I have always taken it for granted. I've never understood it. So what we're going to do right now is we're going to kind of keep Next in Fashion in mind, and we're going to think about the design elements that go into producing a successful workshop where 
difficult conversations can be held and collaboration and positive outcomes can occur. So I'm going to share two of the design elements that I personally thought were critical to the success of the workshop. The first was that we pulled together a really powerful steering committee, and this committee was comprised of people with the expertise, the experience, and the authority to basically work over the course of multiple months and collaboratively design the workshop agenda. Now, the very first task of this uh, steering committee was to answer a question that I posed to them, which was, what's your North Star? What would success look like at the end of this workshop? And what they all came up with was that if at the end of the workshop, there were up to three mitigation measures that the fishermen and the regulators agreed could work, were cost-effective, could actually be implemented, wouldn't harm the actual fishing practices, that that would be successful. They also agreed that they would like there to be kind of a path forward to implementing them, so some commitments to actually moving forward with them. Okay, so the next design element I'm going to share with you actually comes in two parts, and it has to do with kind of building into your workshop agenda um, the sessions that are going to help you reach that North Star. And there were two things that we did to help reach that North Star of coming up with mitigation measures. The first was we spent the entire first morning doing a kind of share out of information. The regulators and scientists shared out the data and the research that they had been doing showing that black-footed albatross were being impacted by these fishing practices. Um, And the fishermen had a chance to kind of push back, ask questions, and share their own observations out on the water of what they thought was happening. And the net effect of this kind of full morning of sharing out of information and baking in facilitated dialogue and Q&A was that we were kind of building on the trust and rapport that Dan talked about earlier. There already was some, largely due to him and the organization that he represented, but there was still some tension in the room. And so there was more trust to be built. And this morning session really helped kind of break down some of those walls and barriers and give the fishermen and the regulators direct access to each other and an opportunity to really push back. And the fishermen, in fact, did push back on some of the data that was presented. And we'll talk a little bit about more, more about that later. But um, the regulators were very, very respectful in their response. Um, they heard the fishermen and what they were asking. And that was a really important part of the workshop. So this kind of trust-building exercise on day one um, was really instrumental in kind of moving it into the next phase Um, because of this kind of breakdown of some walls that were there at the beginning. And speaking of the next phase, that's actually the second part of this design element. It had to do with these breakout groups that we designed. And the idea was to basically put the regulators and the fishermen at the same table in small groups to design collectively mitigation measures that they both thought might work. Here's Dan talking a little bit about that. During breakout sessions, you had crew members sitting at a table with regulators with large pieces of paper drawing potential mitigation measures, you know, illustrating tools and techniques that, that, that they had used or they thought that they could use to address the concerns that were being raised by the, by the managers. Now it's time to answer the critical question of whether this workshop actually worked. Was it successful? Did they meet the North Star? So in order to answer it, we're going to turn again to Jason and Dan. 
Yeah. So at the end of the workshop, I was definitely um, surprised that it went as well as it did. I, I was expecting a lot more adversarial interactions and, and, um, and I felt like they, that the industry understood what, what we were trying to do and engaged in trying to find common solutions that would work for everybody. The two outputs from the workshop that I thought were really important, one, and, and they really rely on, on what you said, was, was the trust that was developed between these two sets of what can be contentious uh, you know, uh, participants. The, the two things that came out of it, one was that, yes, we're going to do a better job of collecting data and communicating what, the, what, what we see in the data and how we are understanding the data from the regulators. And on the other hand, was, this, was, was the willingness and the commitments made by the industry to, to, to do their own work on mitigation devices, to sort of to, to, to start developing their own ways to get those cables into the water or their own ways to, to move the birds away from the cables. So I think it's fair to interpret from those two clips that both Jason and Dan agreed that that North Star was reached, that the fishermen and the regulators agreed to several mitigation measures that they collectively thought could work. They agreed to a path forward to implementing them. And then another success that actually hadn't been identified um, as one of our objectives, but turned out to be really important, according to Dan, which was a commitment by the regulators to collect more data to address the issues and concerns that the fishermen had about the findings. So about two and a half years have passed since this workshop happened, and now it's time to see if these two promises that came out of the workshop, the promise by the regulators to collect more data and the promise by the fishermen to test these mitigation measures, if they actually came to pass. So first, we're going to check in on the data collection. Yeah, so the data now is, it's quite interesting. So in 2019, we had uh, partnered with Oregon Sea Grant and the industry to do cooperative research on these vessels and put dedicated seabird monitors on these vessels. So So before... The, the other project I was describing was um, these were fisheries observers who had lots of other duties besides monitoring for seabirds, right? These seabird monitors in 2019, they were dedicated to st- sit out there and watch those wires during the day and document all the interactions and what the bird, and particularly if a bird hits the wire and um, follow that bird to see whether you think it's going to die or live. Um, in this case, particularly albatross, if an albatross were to break a wing, that bird is essentially dead. They spend literally 90% of their life on the wing. If they can't fly, they're, they're, they're done. Um, and what it turns out is that the mortality rate was about uh, 10 times lower than what I had uh, estimated from the uh, literature from the Southern Ocean. It's about it's about 0.7% or 1% essentially, um, which when you look at the data uh, over the four-year period makes the conservation concern a lot less, at least for albatross, um, which really is sort of the main concern because of the, um, uh, because of the ESA status of short-tailed albatross. Um, so the conservation concern has kind of gone away. And, and so I think it was really key for the, the industry to actually point that out to us and say, you know, you re- we really need to understand this problem a lot better. We need you to go back out there and collect better data 
And we did that in 2019. And it looks like the conservation concern is not zero, um, but less. Uh, another thing that came out of that data, which was also kind of interesting, is we had never documented a short-tailed albatross around these vessels, but these seabird monitors actually documented a number of short-tailed albatross within striking distance of these vessels. So it's entirely possible that one of these birds could interact with these vessels. So that that's sort of uh, another piece of the puzzle that we didn't have before that we have now. So NOAA did follow through on its commitment, collected more data, and actually found that the fishermen were right. The data wasn't really showing the impacts that they had previously thought, although they did find that there was the risk to the short tails because they documented short tails in the area, so potentially at risk. So like all natural resources issues, kind of complicated, but yes, they did follow through on that commitment. So now time to check in on the other commitment. Did the fishermen follow through on testing the mitigation measures? So the first mitigation measure that was agreed to at the workshop is potentially helpful is called a snatch block. And this is a device that physically gets attached to these cables and pulls them down out of the air and into the water and therefore out of harm's way for the seabirds flying around. Here's Jason talking about the testing of the snatch block. So they've tested the snatch block and it does work. It has some issues with it. Uh, one of the things that happens is the wire becomes more tense, under more tension, and you have the potential to break that wire. And one of the wires is extremely expensive to replace. And in fact, one vessel did break their wire using a snatch block in testing conditions. And so that wasn't so good. So the snatch block was tested, but apparently not working so well. The next mitigation measure was the water cannon. And just like the name implies, a cannon that shoots water to scare away the birds. Another vessel had actually tried the water cannons. It didn't work so well. We had a we had a special seabird monitor on that vessel when they were testing it. And she said at one point the water was supposed to be sort of squirting off the back of the vessel, but it was the wind was so high that the water was blowing all the way back and hitting the wheelhouse where the captain is. And the captain got on the on the intercom and said, turn that stupid thing off. <laughs> so Limited solution, really, if, if a real solution at all. Now, the third mitigation measure was something called streamer lines. And streamer lines are kind of like those little Buddhist prayer flags. They're these little flags that get attached to the cables and make them more visible to the seabirds. And we know these things scare birds away. They're, they're basically lines that come off the back of the vessel with little ribbons off of it. It kind of looks like those... Um, those uh, flags you might have in your yard or something like that. And one boat tested them and kind of actually developed some interesting modifications to them for use in the trawl fishery. And they look very, very promising. We have some data from last year to suggest that that, that could be a real game changer if, if they could use those kinds of uh, mitigation measures. So the snatch blocks so far not showing a lot of promise. Neither are the water cannons, but these streamer lines are showing a lot of promise. And the coronavirus pandemic, of course, continues to wreak havoc on everybody, not just my family and driving us to watch Next in Fashion, <laughs> but it is wreaking havoc on all kinds of industries, including the fishing industry. I asked Deanne to reflect on how the pandemic has kind of changed the industry's ability to continue testing these mitigation measures. And here he is. 
the companies are still working on the development and the use of these different techniques. So there still is experimentation with water cannons, with other bird baffling um, techniques. You know, I think there's two different ways of, of addressing seabird interactions with trawl cables. Either you, you get those cables into the water right away so the birds can't hit them, or you find ways to make them more visible, streamer lines, different colors for the cables, or you find things like water cannons or other baffling devices that move the birds away from the cables. And so, my, again, I, yes, this is a challenging time for a variety of reasons for the fishing industry. I do think be, because we recognize that, that the Fish and Wildlife Service, National Fisheries Service, there's still an expectation that at some point they're going to need to take a hard look at the potential for mitigation measures that it's in the best interest of the industry to continue to hone these techniques so that when we're approached with the question, okay, so now it's time to have another workshop and to sort of narrow down the, the universe of potential um, mitigation tools, it's in the best interest of the industry to have done that groundwork ahead of time. So there you have it. Two and a half years later, the f- regulatory sector has followed through on its commitment to collect more data And the fishing industry has also followed through on its commitment to test these three mitigation measures, and they continue to do it despite the coronavirus pandemic and the havoc that it has wreaked. So great successes from my perspective. And speaking of successes, it's not just in the North Pacific that fishermen and regulators have partnered to try to find innovative ways to protect albatross and other seabirds. But this work is being done all over the world, and there's a group called BirdLife International which works globally to protect seabirds, and they have an albatross task force and have had a ton of success reducing albatross deaths through their partnerships with the fishing fleets. One of the successes they point to is their work in South Africa, where they have had a 99% reduction in albatross deaths since they started working there in 2006. I want to leave you with a quote by Prince Charles, the Albatross's celebrity spokesman, who, by the way, gets a lot of flack, but he has won me over with his work on behalf of Albatross. Here goes. The Albatross may be the ultimate test whether or not, as a species ourselves, we are serious about conservation, capable of coexisting on this planet with other species. You know, at the end of the day, everyone is seeking really the same outcome, right? I mean, people, yes, people want to catch fish because th- these companies are making money off of catching fish, producing products, selling that product. But these companies are also in this fishery for the long term. I mean, sustainability is important. We've got MSC certification for our fisheries. We work closely with managers. We cl- work closely with other sectors because this is a, sustainability is, is a long-term goal long-term objective that we all share. And again, the best way to ensure that outcome is for folks working together. I have a few people to thank for today's episode. First and foremost, my two guests here in the virtual cafe, Jason Janet and Dan Waldeck. I also want to thank the amazing members of the steering committee, all from NOAA, Vanessa Tuttle, Tom Good, Shannon Fitzgerald, and Anne-Marie Ike, as well as Jason. 
I want to thank all the fishing industry representatives and the agency representatives who sat with me for two days in that workshop in Seattle. And last but not least, I want to thank my VEDA team. This podcast is sponsored by my company, VEDA Environmental, and my team there, Sarah Brace, Marie Roethlisberger, and Melanie Del Rosario, could not have done it without you. And I invite you to check out our website, conservationcafe.org, for all kinds of information related to today's episode and other episodes. A couple quick corrections for this episode. First, during the conversation with Jason about breeding locations for the short-tailed albatross, he has since told me that Torishima Island is not actually the only island that has a breeding population of short-tailed albatrosses. The Senkaku Islands also have a breeding population, but scientists are not sure about the status of that particular population because the Senkaku Islands are disputed territories and scientists have not been able to visit them since 2002. And correction number two, at about 1234, Jason intended to say black-footed albatross, not black-tailed albatross.